leadership at any level isn't about creating followers. It's about creating new leaders. You know, it's hard to develop talent if you don't give folks an opportunity to try things and learn and fail. Uh, so if you've got a if you've got a system that's over centralized, the learning isn't occurring at the appropriate level. Hello and welcome to the Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Commander Matthew Horton. Today we are joined by Mr. James Hondo Gertz. At the time of this recording, Mr. Gertz is performing the duties of the Undersecretary of the Navy. He has over 30 years of service to our country, and his previous leadership roles include time as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition, as the Acquisition Executive for U.S. Special Operations Command, and he also spent 22 years in uniform as an Air Force officer. And he has been good enough to lend us time out of his busy schedule to come talk to us today on leadership lessons from his many years in government service. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee and join us in the wardroom. Mr. Gertz, welcome to the wardroom. Thanks. Great to be here with you, Matt. Well, I want to go ahead and jump right in. So, you know, one of the things that we see a lot in the news today is this shift towards great power competition. And that's both as a nation and as a military. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think we are doing well? And where do you think we can improve? And, and, and I would add to that, what leadership skills do we as an engineering duty officer team need to be developing in this great power competition? Yeah, so I, uh, I certainly uh, believe we are well in, if not entering in uh, a new era of competition with a you know, nuclear-powered or nuclear-armed peer. But I don't think we should think of it as that drastic of change or something we haven't done before. Uh, a lot of it is just retooling how we think about things and how we attack problems. And by that, I mean, you know, having a sense of opportunism and looking for opportunities and then leveraging all the different strengths we have. So if you go back and think of a team, whether it's one of your squadrons or a ship you're on or your high school basketball team or uh, your church choir or something, that quintessential team you're on, that was really competitive, you probably think back and you can think of some traits they had, right? Uh, everybody kind of had everybody else's back. You figured out where you had strengths and how to leverage strengths, and you were very dynamic in applying those strengths and talents to the problems at hand. And you tried to get the other team to react to what you're doing and not you be the one reacting to uh, what they're doing. So I think if you think about that, then at the individual level as EDOs, or the programs you're supporting, then I think a couple traits really kind of jump out at me. Uh, one of those traits is curiosity. Always exploring, trying to figure out new ways to do things, figure out what somebody else is doing that you can build off of or learn from or poach. Uh, I think about having humility, that you don't have to be the one to invent everything. We don't have the time for everybody to invent everything on their own. We've got to take what somebody else is doing and apply it more quickly. So I think of a kind of a, a velocity of learning, uh, learning quickly in the right directions. And then finally is a boldness to act. Competition does not favor the timid. Uh, it doesn't favor those who hesitate too long. So I'm not talking about being reckless or undisciplined, exactly the opposite. Uh, you've got to be very disciplined. You've got to understand everything you're doing, but then you've got to act boldly. Uh, and I think those three traits put together, uh, then with an opportunistic mindset that leverages uh, all the talents that are on a team, uh, is really the way we need to go. And so 
I think we have to do that as individuals, as teams, as a military, and then as a country. And then we can start pacing ahead of our competitors versus feeling like we're uh, chasing them. Well, sir, that's a good transition because I wanted to talk to you about the speed of acquisition. Because I think we've all realized that we have to go faster, right? We have to be able to do acquisition faster. But how do we balance that speed with that need not to be reckless, like you were describing? And also maintain oversight, both within the Defense Department's acquisition workforce and ultimately at the congressional level, and really still deliver that capability that reliably works and and provide that to the warfighter. So I think uh, the the way to attack this, the way we have been attacking it, uh, it's the same thing, the same approach I used in in past lives. Uh, I call it the four Ds. Uh, the first one is uh, decentralized to the lowest capable level, and I'm going to underline the word capable there. So you know, adding bureaucracy does not normally improve a product. Uh, it may help mitigate some risk here and there if done properly. Uh, so the first thing we've got to do is be comfortable delegating work down to the lowest capable level so that we have as many, as the majority of folks doing the work as opposed to reviewing the work. Uh, and that implies training. That implies constant development. That implies a level of expertise and certification. But many times we have experts who aren't given the freedom to move at the speed uh, they need to to get something done. The second piece I'd say is we've got to differentiate the work. And we've got to get a little bit away from the, we either have to do everything really fast or really slow. We've got to pick the pace that's appropriate for the task we have. So if we're, if I use a nuclear submarine, for example, the pace at which we change the outer hull or the pace at which we change the propulsion system does not be and should not be at the same pace uh, that we change an acoustic algorithm on the sonar or a way we display graphics on a, a panel. And so, We've got to now differentiate work. So if we can empower the workforce, make sure they're trained, certified, uh, have the appropriate skills, and then differentiate the work so they can bring lots of different tools, they can pick the right tool for the job. Thirdly, we need to use the power of the digits and get folks out of work that doesn't add value by having a human in the middle of it, automating and all that. And then finally, and most importantly, is we've got to really focus on developing talent. So when I think about acquisition speed, I think of is it as fast as it's appropriate to be done. And the trick is leaders or folks in the organization is to respect that some things need to be done fast and use a certain process, and some things need to be done more deliberately uh, with a different process. And one's not better or worse. They're just two different tools. So as I think about risk, uh, if, if we're in a constrained environment where we've only got so many people and so much money, then if we apply too many of those resources to a task which doesn't have risk, we're actually taking more risk because we're starving a task that has a lot of risk from the resources. So this is all about getting the balance right, differentiating the work, and then using the right tool for the job. I appreciate your comment about developing talent, and, and I wanted to ask you about that too. So what can we do as a service to recognize, reward, and, and really promote that talent? And and I would say that both for those of us in uniform and our civilian workforce. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, to me, you know, leadership at any level isn't about creating followers. It's about creating new leaders. 
you know, it's hard to develop talent if you don't give folks an opportunity to try things and learn and fail. Uh, so if you've got a if you've got a system that's over centralized, the learning isn't occurring at the appropriate level. It's hard to learn when we don't give folks access to a wide array of tools. It's hard to learn when we don't value communicating across uh, different boundaries. And it's hard to learn when we let things like discrimination or not uh, creating a culture where folks think they can bring the best to the table to do so. So I think there's a couple things we all need to do. One is we need to always you know, set very high professional standards of conduct in the office and make sure that everybody feels safe to bring their talents to the table in the way that can be most useful for the team. And that as a leader or a teammate, if you can create that safety where everybody feels empowered to bring their talents, then it's all about figuring out how to work together to generate the outcome that you're looking for. And so too many times we think about leadership in a hierarchical terms, not team leadership or uh, how to empower everybody informally. And that's a lot of the way talent gets developed. It's not through formal training, although you need to do some formal training. A lot of it is from hands-on experience and learning from each other uh, and having the humility to understand that, you know, as a lieutenant or as a GS-12, uh, you may not know everything. And so figure out who knows it and learn from them. If you're somebody who knows a lot of things, part of your job is to teach those around you. Uh, again, all under this kind of um, mission-focused culture of respect. Uh, when that starts happening, you don't have to think about developing talent discreetly. It's occurring all around you all the time. And then the, the last thing I would say is if you're one of the person trying to develop talent, try and do more than one specific thing. Round out your skills. Uh, I mean, for, for goodness sake, you had a special ops guy from the Air Force uh, as a head acquisition guy in the Navy and the Marine Corps. Uh, and so you don't have to be an expert in a particular area to bring value to the area. In fact, sometimes you can bring value just because you aren't the expert and you're looking at things from a different direction. I really appreciate those comments, sir. You know, you're echoing some of the things that I heard Admiral O'Connell say on a previous episode, which I really appreciated. And I, and I can tell that she learned a lot from you in that regard. But I do think that that is something that that is important, that we continue to engage in a culture of respect and inclusion. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, I learned a lot from Admiral O'Connell as well. Um, one thing we tend to think of diversity in just a single dimension, and, and I think of diversity in kind of at least four different dimensions. One of them is, I would say, what the traditional thought is, you know, what's your gender, what's your race, what's your background? And that's an important element, but that's only one dimension of diversity. Another dimension is, what do you know? A third is, how do you think? And a fourth is, who do you know? And so when I think about diversity and creating diverse teams, it's making sure we've got diversity in multiple dimensions, not just in gender or not just in race. Uh, it could be you have a very diverse team from a race and gender perspective, but if everybody went to the same school and learned the same thing and knows the same people, they won't have that, those other dimensions of diversity in there. And so getting to respect people, what the unique things they bring to the team uh, in those multiple dimensions is critically important and, uh, and something we need to be very conscious of as we go forward. Well, thank you for that, sir. Those are good words of wisdom for us to continue to embrace. Um, so... I want to shift gears a little bit on you here. 
I guess maybe go back a little bit because uh, we were talking about great power competition. And and the last time, I I think a lot of us, when we think about great power competition, we we think back to the the Cold War and the rivalry that we had with the Soviet Union. And, And one of the things that strikes me about that time is that the military really was the center of innovation and where a lot of really cool kind of cutting edge things were happening. And I don't know if that is the case as much anymore. I I think there is some. We're embracing that. But I I don't know that we are the center of gravity for those efforts. So I'd like to ask you, how do we recapture that spirit and make working with DOD cool? And by cool, I mean, how do we bring in those companies that are the cutting edge of innovation? You know, the the Googles, the Apples, the, the Amazons, the Teslas, those kinds of companies. Yeah, so I'm going to go back a little to my comment on diversity. And, uh, again, if we're going to be truly competitive, we look at things from, uh, you know, when I think of competitive cycles that I've been in where you've seen a high rate of innovation. You know, I came into the Air Force in the late 80s, you know, Desert Storm, stealth fighters, stealth bombers. Then I went to SOCOM in the early 2000s and, you know, the speed of ISR and the speed of activities there. And now with the Navy is, fight, you know, fighting in the South China Sea, a couple of things come together. One is it was a, an abundance mindset. So the focus wasn't as much on what do we don't have as what do we have that we're not using to its full potential. And in this context, I think of what are those industry partners out there, startups, non-traditionals, commercials? Where is there an abundance of talent or capability or potential that we just not have leverage? It's the same thing on a team if you don't set the right culture on the team and uh, you have folks who know what the right answer is but are afraid to bring it up. So this abundance theory, before I ask for something more, really challenging yourself and your team, have we used to the maximum extent, everything we have, and particularly use them in ways they weren't originally envisioned. And so I think as we think about that, you know, what does the the Department of Defense have? We have really hard problems. We have really complex problems. We have a really uh, uh, important mission. And if COVID, you know, had a lot of really bad effects on our country, some of the positive outcomes of that challenge is to show folks the why you need to have a strong national security, how the DOD can be uh, more than just a tool for, you know, unlimited war, and where there are problems that interesting people need to solve. The challenge on our side is we have to constantly think differently and not just get comfortable with the status quo. And by working with these startups and all these other companies that are out there we just haven't leveraged, you can create really interesting competitive environments or environments of rivalry where you can create the conditions where everybody is learning fast uh, and and uh, competing against each other uh, to get a better outcome. Some of that is having an open mind. Some of that is, you know, back to my three keys, the curiosity to explore, the humility to learn, and the boldness to act. If you're not curious about what's out there and all your only answer is a certain prime contract or a certain process, you are de facto limiting your ability to be agile and bring something new to the table. Uh, and, and at best, you're just going to be uh, innov- innovative in a very uh, small incremental approach. And so I think it's, you know, being comfortable looking for new things and new ways and giving them a shot. 
Well, sir, you're helping me out with some good segues here. So I wanted to talk about instilling that competition in the industrial base. And by that, I mean not just the big guys, you know, the, the major prime integrators that we have out there, but those smaller companies that you were talking about. But how do we do that? And I mean both in supporting our current capabilities that we um, have that may have come out of that legacy mindset, you know, where the DOD may or may not own some of the data rights for certain things and, and where we might have some trouble in transitioning some of those products, but but also looking forward and fielding some of that future capability that we need. Yeah, so I think um, uh, a lot of really interesting opportunities here. First off, if you're a leader and you haven't delegated down to the appropriate level and you're becoming the person that every piece of paper has to go through and you're approving everything, you'll never have the bandwidth to create a new strategy or do any of these things. So one of the key elements here is as we decentralize the work and get the reviewer-to-doer ratio right is so that then we have some bandwidth then to be uh, looking for uh, innovative investment both on how we think about a problem and who we bring in to think about that problem with. And then we leverage the things where we have strengths, our, you know, our warfare centers. We have, you know, the, the Department of Navy is blessed with a really talented government workforce. And so that may be the area where you do a lot of rapid prototyping. Uh, a big industrial partner may be really good at bringing that to scale and building 100,000 of them. Uh, and so now it's about uh, aligning the strengths of certain pieces of the organization or certain pieces of the industrial base to the areas you need them. At SOCOM, we were having a, you know, we'd look for barriers. What's the barriers of a new company coming in? It could be, it's, you know, they don't have tech cards or it's really hard to get on the base or it's really hard to get something into a flight test program. And so we flipped the equation on how do we make all of that easier? Let's put a facility off base that anybody can walk in. Instead of every cooperative R&D agreement having to be a custom legal document, Let's sign one, a blanket one, and put all the terms and conditions, and if any company wants to have a cooperative R&D agreement, they can just sign on the other side, and you instantly have one. And so we went like 100 times the number of creators in a period of a couple of weeks because we just got rid of the bureaucratic barrier that was there. It could be that we allow uh, you know somebody to fly a box on an airplane or ride on a ship uh, with a minimum level of certification, uh, and they bring the box, we'll go test it. So creating all these different mechanisms where you're attacking the barriers to entry is one of the things that can uh, be really powerful. And, you know, that's how you create a rivalry if you have maybe one company and they seem to be the only ones that build a box to do this or they build a, you know, a missile or a sensor to do that. By seeding these cooperative R&D agreements, by doing rapid prototyping, by inviting new partners in, you're creating a rivalry. You're adding the, to the competitive landscape. And so I think many times we focus too much on competition, meaning is it going to be a full and open competition or a sole source award? And there's a lot more diverse and sophisticated ways to create competition outside of just what contract type or what type of solicitation are you going to send out there? Yes, sir. That's really some good advice. You know, we, we can't be afraid to embrace that competition mindset. I think back to a book I read Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin and, and talking about the great talent that Abraham Lincoln threw around him. And it really was those people building off each other and, and working with each other towards a common goal that really created some cool things that happened within his administration. Yeah, and then as a team, if you can create the architectures, whether it's the technical architecture 
where you've got an open system where you can anybody can bring an app in. Or the business architecture, you have a contract where folks can, you can off-ramp folks out if they're not uh, performing, or you can on-ramp folks if you see a new competitor. If you can figure out the relationship architecture, any of those things, you know, I, the, the word innovation gets overused because it, it tends to mean anything to anybody right now. I think of agility. So I'm always looking at what are the things that uh, we can do to a program, to a process, to a platform that allows us to be much more agile because where I don't want to be is I, is in a position where I have to perfectly predict the future 10 years from now to deliver something that's relevant uh, because I will never perfectly predict the future. Uh, we build a lot of systems that are very brittle, and they'll be awesome if everything works out exactly how we plan, but it never does. And so we've got to we've got to build this resilience and agility kind of mindset into the way we think, as opposed to trying to be hyper efficient, but then create very brittle solutions. And so I think if you keep that in mind as you're thinking through problems, then we can be uh, very much more successful because we get pivot speed, right? We can adapt. If you can adapt faster than your enemy, if you can get your enemy trying to adapt to your cycle as opposed to uh, you reacting to theirs, then outstanding things can occur. And really, really back to your first question, that's how competitive teams win. They don't win because they've architected the perfect solution 10 years in advance. They win because they've created adaptable, resilient, opportunistic teams that are constantly changing the landscape and making their competitor chase them by them chasing their competitor. Yes, sir. It's very helpful for all of us, especially those of us here in the engineering duty officer community. You know, some of the problems that we are working through right now, and I keep going back to that great power thing because that's what we're preaching, but it's how do we build that resiliency? How, how do we make our C5I systems less brittle, like you were describing? Because that's really the key to us being able to restore centers of power, you know, to reconstitute the fleet in the event that we actually go to war, unfortunately, someday. And I, and I think, you know, another piece of your question, whether it's developing talent or it's creating a winning competitive team, we've got to get away from labeling people or labeling things. You know, you're a prime or you're not, or you're a civilian or you're a contractor or you're a military or you're an officer or you're a sailor because everybody has a label. But as soon as we start labeling people, then we start sub-optimizing. Because as soon as you start labeling people, then you start making assumptions about, you know, the, you know, a contractor's just out to make money or the government person's just there to, you know, um, work the clock or the military person doesn't care, you know, they just want ribbons and medals or whatever the silly things that come up along the way. You know, everybody has a skill and it's important to understand who they are and where they're coming from. But I just, the teams I've seen, you, you, it would be hard if somebody wasn't wearing a different piece of clothing to figure out who was who in the zoo, uh, because it was just kind of always adapting, uh, always um, pivoting, constantly in flow kind of a team. And so we've got to be cautious when we start saying, you know, how do we get you know, one group to do this because they're not doing it or this other group. It's really about creating a common goal for a team and then creating that culture of respect where everybody's expected to and has the ability to bring their best to the table no matter what label you or somebody else has put on them. When we can get to that point, then we are a truly competitive team. 
Well, thank you, sir. This was some great advice, and I really enjoyed this conversation today. I have one last question for you, and it is always my favorite one that we get to do every episode. Do you have any good book recommendations for us? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I mean, I would say exposing yourself to lots of different ideas, whether it's in books or on podcasts or video or whatever is really, really important. The thing that differentiates the folks I've seen that have been the most successful has been that they value, um, back to my kind of three things, they value curiosity, whether that's learning from talking to the uh, cleaning lady down the hallway or whether that's talking to a sailor that you're supporting or whether it's talking to your next-door neighbor uh, who's doing something really cool that has nothing to do with the military. So the, I would highlight the always be curious to explore in whatever you do as a, as a key differentiator in terms of performance and leadership performance. And I would say the same on reading. The, the broader variety of things you can read, you know, I love reading science fiction because it gets my mind thinking about possibilities, not constraints. And I love reading about folks' different experiences. I like reading about how the world is changing. And so, you know, my overarching thing would be, you know, the, the wider diversity of stuff you can uh, read, the better. Uh, and I'll give you maybe five or six. Great one is Humility is the New Smart. And that's kind of about how to be humble. Uh, the Originals by Adam Grant, you know, how nonconformists change the world. There's a book called We, the Possibility by Mitch Wise. It talks about innovation and how do you be innovative in public service. A great book called Machine Platform Crowd about how to think differently about producing products. And then uh, there's a good one on the Magici effect, kind of getting back to these multiple dimensions of diversity. But those are just books, you know, I would, my overarching uh, recommendation is uh, read lots of things and the more different and diverse it can be, uh, the better off you are. Uh, those are just a couple uh, if you want to go down that path, but give you lots of other ones too. Well, sir, I appreciate those recommendations, and I'm looking forward to adding them to my bookshelf and getting into those. But, um, Mr. Gertz, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really do appreciate this conversation, and I would be remiss if I didn't say congratulations on your pending retirement, and thank you for your many years of service to our country. No, it's been an honor to serve with all of you guys. I learned uh I learn from you every day. I uh, have been had great fortune in my career to do uh, be exposed to lots of really, really fascinating folks doing amazing things for the country. Uh, I just say keep your chin up, keep pressing, right? Be curious, be humble, and be bold. And I have no uh, qualms whatsoever uh, that we have the right leadership in our ranks and growing in our ranks. Uh, you guys just keep hitting out of the park, and we'll be all good here. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for joining us in the wardrobe. If you have questions you would like our guests to answer, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at wardroompodcast. Special thanks to our new sound engineer, Lieutenant Chantel Lavender. If you like what you heard today, be sure to give us a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. It helps others discover the show and allows us to keep getting great guests like the one you heard today. Join us next time when we will be joined by Rear Admiral Lloyd, who will be chairing a panel on leadership and diversity. We look forward to meeting again in The Warden.